Hello, I'm Sarah. And I'm Joanna. And we are your therapists next door. Join us as we demystify therapy and destigmatize mental health. Every episode, we interview a healthcare professional. It's sometimes serious, sometimes sad, most times ridiculous. This week, we welcome Catherine Celery, who works as a conscious parenting coach. Welcome everyone to Therapist Next Door, the podcast that shows you the human side of your friendly neighborhood healthcare worker. We do this by interviewing a healthcare professional or someone works who works in a healthcare adjacent field each episode, asking questions that you want the answers to and answering questions you didn't know you had. I'm Joanna, a board certified music therapist and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm a white, straight, cisgendered female and my pronouns are she, hers, and I am over mosquitoes over them. I've had a lot of patience, but it's gone now. They bite through the clothes now. Yes, they do. They are evolving much quicker than we are. Because if we were evolving as quick as they were, we would not be. And I think I have that sweet blood that they... My husband has not Mm -hmm. gotten a mosquito bite since we got married. And like since we started living together. So he's had just a charmed life since meeting me. I, I feel like the sweet blood thing is also something that people say about like beauty marks because I had a lot of beauty marks. So older people in my life would be like, oh, that just means your skin's beautiful. And I, before I learned to love my body and skin would be like, well, I don't think I need a mark there to tell me that my skin is beautiful. And I'd rather not have sweet blood. But yeah. 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 Cody doesn't get them either. It's infuriating. Ugh. It's disgusting. <laughs> All right, and I'm Sarah, an LPC from Pennsylvania, transplant from South Jersey. I'm a straight cis white woman, and my pronouns are she, her, and I watched the entire series of clickbait in a day and a half, and it's not really a day and a half. It was a day plus one hour. Um, Wow. I've not heard of clickbait. It wasn't good. Okay. No additional explanation needed. I I had a pretty... I had a weekend away, which was very nice, but it was with a kind of like an insular group of people who had some opinions that were not similar to mine. So coming home to kind of watch something slow and un- unintrusive was nice. That seems like the opposite of what clickbait would be. <laughs> it, was, it was not great. Okay. Yeah. Well, I won't watch it then. But they anyway. Tried. I mean, we could. If you want to talk about it, but that's fine. We don't need to. Okay, we can talk about it. Now. <laughs> um, I bought this like a device that heats mosquito bites to stop them from itching, and it is it is akin to when you used to get a splinter and you didn't want your grandpa to know because he would like take out the pocket knife and try to get it out. Yeah, it, yeah. it works, but it's painful. Um, it's like the the equivalent of like heating up a spoon and putting it on there because it like increases blood flow to the bite. Mm-hmm. yeah and to stop itching and it works because the mosquitoes have only attacked my feet which is arguably the worst place to get them. i mean yeah face is bad hands are bad feet are bad so i don't know well, what's hard, wrong it's with hard my to leg. scratch your like, feet i've got, <laughs> got nice beautiful long leg not long just regular size legs mm-hmm. uh i don't know what's wrong with them just yeah, like, and I feel like as we've both lived in Philly and 
just lived in the city for a while myself not anymore but i think that we the feet are like the scary place for when you get bites yep because they could be related to other kind of buggies Absolutely. that are very intrusive yep can you like draw a visual picture for me of what this thing looks like this contraption it's like a it's bites? like a pen mm-hmm. that's got a ceramic little plate at the bottom mm-hmm. you press the button and it goes beep and then it heats up to like 124 <laughs> degrees or something so it's not enough to burn you but it's enough yeah. to be like hot so okay very interesting yeah. it's made in germany I, I definitely need it i definitely need a tester made in germany yeah. it tracks i uh, i bought it at 3 a.m like two nights ago because my feet were so bad that i was like i need oh. something I'm so sorry. Yeah, like I said, it, there used to be a time that wearing clothing to your wrists and ankles protected folks like us, but those well, days yeah. are gone. Now, I, I mean, I'm wearing socks in bed now because I think there's one in my bedroom. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I don't know how to stop that. No, I think you're I think you're doing what you can. Right, have you ever heard of the New Jersey mosquitoes? The ones that are like huge, the size of daddy long legs. Yes, I've seen them. Also, is that the right name? I don't know if that's regional. I don't know. I've just seen... I, I thought that those were like the female mosquitoes and those are the ones that don't bite. So I don't know, though. This is like mosquito lore now. We're getting yeah. into it. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that evolutionarily speaking, I don't know how much... I mean, for ecosystems, I don't know how much good or necessity mosquitoes have. Like, I feel like they are those kind of creatures a small group of creatures that if you just snapped your fingers and you like thanos them we'd all be okay like the ecosystem would carry on i don't yeah. think so like i think so right, i feel think? like i saw a reddit post that was like if thanos did this it wouldn't be good honestly to mosquitoes specifically yes yeah oh man sometimes i think that i have original thoughts and then i realize maybe they're canon somewhere else and i just <laughs> my third eye glimpsed them briefly yeah absolutely damn but it, it's an original thought for you. That's very nice. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, mosquitoes oh, are bad. Trash. Yeah. Cool. How are your floors? Uh, they're pretty clean. I mean, yeah. my physical floor is not very clean, but my podcast floor is clean. Yeah. Also, housekeeping is not needed over here either. I think that we are clean and brushed and mopped. I think we're set. Yeah. All right. Well, stay tuned after break as we dive into our history lesson for this week. And now it's time for our history lesson. The history lesson is compiled facts in the form of a narrative describing history, both good and bad, in order to give context for the field our interviewee works in. Our sources for today include an article entitled A Spoonful of Kerosene, 150 Years of Parenting Advice by Anna Mondongo, the U.S. US Children's Bureau Parenting Advice from Uncle Sam by Nicholas Day, and the behavioral perspective on a website called decisionlab.com. No trigger warning today, so enjoy. Despite a tumultuous bit of a volatile history of parenting advice, it is 
free of triggers today. We will start with the history of behaviorism. Behavioral therapy was established when behavioral psychologist John B. Watson published his paper, Psychology as the Behavioralist View It, in 1913. Watson suggested that people begin life as blank slates and can be conditioned into behaving in any way. While Watson is often referred to as the father of behavioral perspective, Ivan Pavlov is the founder of classical conditioning. Pavlov's famous experiment is colloquially known as Pavlov's dogs and was accidentally discovered in 1897 while trying to measure how much saliva dogs produced hmm. to stimuli. <laughs> Pavlov's lab assistant <laughs> would give the dogs a bowl of food, which causes them to salivate. He found that after a while, the dogs would salivate when they would see the lab assistant, regardless of whether he was bringing them food or not. The naturally occurring response of salivating when food was presented became associated with different stimulus. The lab assistant himself. This study, which demonstrated classical conditioning, helped create a foundation for the behavioral perspective because it showed that behavior can be trained. Like my dog, whenever we open any package, she assumes it's for her and it has food in it. So she gets very excited. So same with the cats. They think it's treats for them, but also Doze definitely has like pica and just chews on plastic. Like we've just oh. found plastic oh, no. eaten all throughout the apartment and I've had to confiscate all the plastic. That's not good. The shower curtain is full of holes. Oh, it's really cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's she's eaten a full plastic bottle before, which I was like, ah, oh, you know, luckily she's fine. But yeah, no, fair reaction. Yeah, <laughs> That's wild. Seven years after publishing his paper, Watson also conducted the infamous Little Albert experiment. I hate this. I didn't didn't know about this. Today, this, this experiment would be deemed unethical, duh. But there were fewer policies and guidelines for psychological experiments in the 1920s. In the Little Albert experiment, Watson and his graduate student, Rosalie Rayner, you'd be happy for two seconds that there's a woman represented, but then... Yeah, I mean, Little will... Albert experiment just sounds so ominous. I know. Oh, I know. Uh, Watson and his graduate student, Rosalie Rayner, wanted to see if classical conditioning also worked for humans, since Pavlov had shown it did work for dogs. They tested the theory on a baby, Albert. Watson and Rayner showed Little Albert neutral stimuli, including a white rat, a rabbit, and a monkey. Initially, Albert did not respond to any stimulus in a way that indicated fear. However, Albert would burst into tears if a hammer was struck against a steel oh. bar behind his head. Appropriate. Watson and Rayner decided to strike the steel bar when Albert was being shown the white rat. This was repeated a number of times over two sessions, a week apart. At that point, Albert learned to cry when presented with a white rat because he had learned the fear response by associating the rat with a loud noise. Following Watson's footsteps sorry, from Albert. around, sorry, Albert. I know you're not little and not with us anymore, yeah. probably, but retro retroactive. Sorry. From around 1920 to the mid 1950s, the behavioral perspective continued to grow until it became the dominant theory of motivation. This was in part due to the fact that psychology was trying to establish itself as an objective and measurable science. Since the behavioral perspective suggested that internal characteristics have no influence on actions or emotions, it provided the opportunity for objectivity and measurement of external stimuli. Since the behavioral perspective suggests that our behavior and who we are is dependent on learning and conditioning, critics argue that the perspective negates free will. Instead of being active agents in our decision-making processes, behaviors argue that we simply respond to, stim to stimuli. This view seems to reduce complex human beings to 
mechanic entities. For this reason, the psychodynamic approach which Sigmund Freud developed criticizes the behavioral perspective for not taking into account unconscious influences. One of the biggest criticisms of the behavioral perspective is that it is reductionist. It suggests everything can be explained through the stimulus-response relationship and ignores what cannot be observed, including emotions, internal thoughts, or cognitive biases. To suggest that all behavior can easily be traced back to a response from our environment is to ignore many facets of our humanity. Individual differences are explained as mere differences in conditioning instead of results of different personalities. Belief in the behavioral perspective has also led to some unethical applications. Cognitive behavioral therapy, the branch of psychotherapy associated with behaviorism, tries to change thinking patterns. While it can be life-changing for people dealing with anxiety, depression, or maladaptive or intrusive thoughts, it is also historically drawn on in conversion therapy, which tries to convert people's sexuality and gender to cis-heterosexuality. That, that really upset me, and this article hadn't established yet so i had to add the the cis part but it hadn't mm-hmm. established yet that conversion therapy is still being used for yes uh for gender identity and it's it makes, makes me very sad that cbt is weaponized like that yeah a number of other perspectives contradict the behavioral perspective namely One, the biological perspective, which has gained traction with scientific advancements and has allowed us to, quote, see what happens on the inside. The biological perspective states that all behavior has a physical or organic cause. While our biology can be shaped by the environment, the the biological perspective believes that our actions can be explained largely by what happens inside our bodies. The two, the cognitive perspective rejects the biological perspective because it believes The biological perspective reduces humans to their biological instincts. The cognitive perspective instead suggests that humans are information processors. When we are exposed to stimuli, we access the information that we've stored in our minds to form an appropriate response. While the cognitive perspective shares some similarities to the behavioral perspective, it is more concerned with non-observable things like memory and decision-making. And three, the cross-cultural perspective, which is relatively new, suggests that behavior is guided by cultural influences. It is often used to describe behavior that seems odd to some people, but that is actually a product of norms and customs of a different culture. Since there are so many perspectives, it is difficult to suggest that all behavior can be explained by learning and conditioning alone. While some actions are certainly reinforced or diminished through conditioning, Other factors like genetics, culture, thoughts, feelings, and environments certainly play into human behavior. Let's talk about the U.S. Children's Bureau. Yes. Founded in 1912 and housed in the Department of Labor, okay, the Children's Bureau was the first federal agency to be run by women and marked the first time the federal government committed to efforts on behalf of children's health and welfare. The Bureau's mission was to reduce infant and child mortality, improve child health, abolish child labor, advocate for those with special needs, including the orphaned, abandoned, disabled, and delinquent. It also had a limited mandate, investigating and educating while leaving intervention and services to the state. The Bureau received about 125,000 letters each year from 1915 to 1932, a huge number of them from mothers requesting advice about caring for their offspring. 
Infant Care was published in 1914, the year after Prenatal Care became the government's best-selling publication of all time, with the 25 millionth copy distributed in 1942. Here's a fun fact, if you're ready. The highest-selling publication from the U.S. government is the Constitution of the United States and the Declaration of Independence, the pocket edition, and you must buy a minimum of three copies when ordering from U.S. government bookstores. The bottom of the list is the U.S. Army Physician Assistant Handbook. Hmm. Yeah, I, I I took out a lot of information there because I think we should have a whole episode about the U.S. Children's Bureau, but it was eventually defunded starting in the 40s. The American Medical Association urged Congress to gut it completely because its healthcare represented socialist healthcare, which on a large scale would be universal healthcare. And for reasons, people were wary of that in the 40s, but not for good reasons. All right. So now we're going to talk about the history of parenting advice in Canada. While obviously we're not in Canada, our cultures share a lot of similarities, and this article was available. So starting in 1867, which was when Queen Victoria signed what is now Canada's constitution, from 1867 to World War I, when Canada became Canada itself. So the first piece of advice involved showers. According to English physician P.H. Chavas, whose widely popular books on parenthood were published around the world, quote, a shower in pregnancy gives too great a shock and might induce a miscarriage, making baths the order of the day. The next piece of advice regarded long walks. Medical professionals advised pregnant women to be extremely cautious. Long walks, horseback riding, sex, dancing, and riding in a carriage over a bumpy road were all believed to induce miscarriages. The next piece of warning was to censor your thoughts. Up until the mid-19th century, medical professionals believed in maternal impressions. The idea that a pregnant woman, by being startled or looking at ugly things, could directly transmit that experience onto her unborn child in the form of birthmarks or malformations. Doctors believed that impure thoughts and volatile emotions could poison a breastfeeding mother's milk as well. Thus, it was best to avoid any situation that could upset the new mother. Next piece of advice is about beer. Mm. For nursing mothers, quote, a moderate quantity of fresh, mild ale or a porter of the best beverage for dinner. In 19th century, this was good advice as Canada was without access to clean drinking water nationwide, making beer the safest option, which we have heard before in one of our history lessons. The next point is kerosene. For croup, Canadian physician B.G. Jeffries recommends a spoonful of sugar hmm, and a few drops of kerosene, repeated Mm -hmm. until a full teaspoon of kerosene had been ingested. For the common cold, six to ten drops of turpentine. Which would stop a cold in its tracks. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Jeffries is quoted as <laughs> stop a lot of things in its tracks. Jeffries is quoted as quoted as saying, "We have used it for the past twenty five years and always with good results." Okay. Next piece of advice involves corsets. Numerous doctors during the late nineteenth and early twentieth century condemned the use of corsets, especially during pregnancy which is pretty good. But even as as late as 1917, one could find advertisements for maternity corsets in magazines like the Canadian Home Journal. Interesting. Yes. Moving on to years 1919 to 1931. To guarantee growth of its population in the 20s, the Canadian Department of Health began publishing a series that would come to be known as the Little Blue Books, the most popular being the Canadian Mother's Book. 
which opened with the statement, the government of Canada recognizes you as the makers of Canada. No national service is greater than the work of the mother in her own home. Yet despite putting mothers on a pedestal, books published after the First World War differed from their Victorian counterparts in that during pregnancy and childbirth, a mother's instinct was no longer deemed to be enough. Hmm. Moving on to the necessity of doctors. As birthing instructions and homemade remedies began disappearing from the pages of parenting guides, parents became more and more dependent on government-sanctioned institutions. In 1926, 18% of births in Canada took place in a hospital. By 1940, the number had soared to 45%. Working mothers. This is a quote from a long-term Montreal mayoral Martin Metterick 1933 issue of Chantaline. Montreal Go home! Mayor. Sorry. <laughs> Montreal Mayor. Montreal Mayor Martin Metterick. What did I say? No, I was just because the alliteration is... Montreal is Mayor Martin Metterick. Go home, young woman! He was referring to the multitudes of women who entered the workforce during World War I. Quote, Wouldn't life be happier if many of these unemployed men could be given work, even if it meant that these women would have to go home to be supported by their father, husband, or brother, as they were, were in pre- feministic days i i'm just so sad that for so many centuries people have been denied work because other people have taken their jobs yep. <laughs> this next one cry it out is one of the pieces of advice that is still alive today in many circles in addition to strict feeding schedules or caloric requirements Experts advise a regimented sleep schedule as well. The blue books told mothers to, quote, not pick up the baby every time he cries. This is the way to teach him to cry every time he wants amusement. I, okay. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Advice from 1950 to 1975. Following the Second World War, the nuclear family unit and gender roles became more rigid. As birth rates soared, the child-rearing industry boomed. Mm hmm and brought with it children's programming, books, and a new style of parenting that valued instinct over regimentation. First published in 1946, American pediatrician Benjamin Spock's Baby and Child Care became a household staple. Next piece of advice is surrounding the quote, you know more than you think you do. This one is nice, if I remember. Mm. Don't hold me to that. These were the opening words of Spock's best-selling book, Common Sense Book of Baby and Child Care. He insisted that it was indeed, quote, better to make a few mistakes and being natural than to do everything letter perfect out of the feeling of worry, end quote. It proved a refreshing departure from the demanding guides of old. Constant reliance on the physician and government wanted waned as parents developed confidence in their own abilities and knowledge of their child. Final piece of information from this, this section, just the way you are. Instead of doling out love only when earned, Spock made the radical suggestion that, quote, to love and enjoy your children for what they are and forget about the qualities they don't have, end quote. During this period, parents began perceiving their children as individuals in their own right with needs and that could not be satisfied by a one-size-fits-all solution. Let's talk about self-care. While self-care might seem like a millennial concept, as early as the 1960s, people were realizing that an emotionally fulfilled parent was an essential part of the family. With attention centered on the baby, it became easier for parents to forget to take care of themselves. Quote, the tendency is for parents to consider the child at least as important as themselves, perhaps even potentially more important, wrote Spock. 
Indeed, a household where parents lose their sense of identity to cater to their child's every want is unlikely to be a happy one. Working mothers. Despite the percentage of working mothers with preschool-aged children rising from 19% in 1967 to 29% in 1973, again, this is still in Canada, you wouldn't know it from reading the parenting literature. Nearly all books and articles were written under the assumption that the audience belonged to nuclear family units. By 1979, the tides had begun to shift, albeit marginally, with Chantelaine's The Canadian Mother and Child, citing women in the workplace as a potential factor in low breastfeeding rates. From 1980 to 1999, Canada entered the digital age and parents were faced with the problem of of raising families in a society that was much different from the one they grew up in. Parents had to decide for themselves to what extent technology should be a part of their child's life. It proved a divisive topic, splitting parents into two camps, those who embraced technology for its incredible educational potential and those who sought to restrict it due to its risks. In the meantime, parenting guides began to focus their attention on families that have always existed but were seldom acknowledged. Single parent households, LGBTQ plus parents and interracial families, to name a few. So the new type of family, with alternative family units becoming more and more common, single parent households rose from 12% in 1981 to 19% by the new millennium, literature from the 80s and 90s began addressing the needs and issues unique to single parents, working mothers, and the LGBTQ plus community. Some of the most popular included the Lesbian and Gay Parenting Handbook, Single Mothers by Choice, and even The Single Father. Books for children began appearing on shelves as well, though not without a fight. In 1997, a school board in Surrey, British Columbia, attempted to ban Canadian written's Asha Mums from its libraries, a case that made it all the way to the Supreme Court, who ruled the ban unreasonable in 2002. And for dads, parenting literature also experienced a boost. Fathers were encouraged to be more involved in the lives of their children and take more responsibility with household chores, redefining masculinity in the modern age. Spock's baby and child care evolved with the times and eliminated exclusively female pronouns, urging fathers to take on at least half of the management of children when you get home from work and on the weekends. Now to the internet. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Children born in the digital age would be the first to grow up with social media, cell phones, and the internet at their fingertips. One professional writing for Chantelaine recommended, quote, technology be a part of a rich rich mix of games, puppets, books, and loving adults who help the child succeed in a nurturing environment. But for every article extolling the virtues of technology, there existed another condemning it as dangerous and responsible for the, quote, dumbing down of an entire generation. Sorry. <laughs> I guess that's our generation. Look at us now. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, talking about helicopter parents, with the worldwide coverage of child abduction cases, parents were gripped with the fear Parents were gripped with fear and children's freedoms were severely curtailed. Despite the fact that crime had been steadily decreasing for several decades, parents felt it necessary to monitor their child's every move, both outside and online. Precautions that would have been considered excessive in the 1970s, like nanny cams, child leashes, and home surveillance, became hot topics. And now finally, for some timeless advice. At the end of the day, it's every parent's goal to do right by their child and bring them up to be thoughtful, engaging individuals with something to contribute to the world. 
Though parenting styles have fluctuated from one extreme to another over the past century and a half, it has always been motivated by the same desire. Even our friend P.H. Shavas, writing in the 1870s, had this to say to parents. Quote, make sure your child understands that you love them. Prove it in your actions. These are better than words. Look after their little pleasures. Join in their little sports. Let love be their pole star. Let it be the guide and the rule of all you do and say to them. I think that's nice. Yeah, that is nice. Good reading. Thanks. Well, join us after the break as we talk to our guest for today. Uh, Welcome back. Let me introduce our guest today, Catherine Sellery, CEO and founder of Conscious Parenting Revolution, helps individuals minimize misunderstandings and meltdowns in order to communicate with more collaboration, cooperation, and consideration. The creator of the Guidance Approach to Parenting, a program that applies conflict resolution skills to communicating more effectively with children, Catherine has positively influenced relationships for generations and brought about healing and reconciliation in families that were suffering from disconnection. For over 20 years, she has taught and coached thousands of parents, educators, social workers, and medical professionals in half a dozen countries through her popular workshops, coaching programs, TEDx talks, and her upcoming book. Catherine is also a trained mediator, attended law school, has certifications in different trauma models, teaches a breathing meditation modality with the Art of Living Foundation, and ran her own commodities trading business in Hong Kong for 30 years. Catherine is a three times TEDx speaker and has released a free ebook titled Seven Strategies to Keep Your Relationship with Your Kids from Hitting the Boiling Point. For her expertise, she has been featured on Atlanta and Co., Fox 31 Denver, for CBS Denver, CBS 8 San Diego, and has been a guest on over 20 podcasts and now over 21. Welcome, Catherine. (laughs) That's great. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I love the history lesson. Wonderful. That means a lot to us. Thank you. (laughs) I know that was really great. Love it. Wow. Amazing. Wonderful. Well, we are so happy to have you here. And we are certainly just going to soak up all the information you have to give us and to share with our listeners. And could you just tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah, I'd be delighted to. So Mm -hmm. yeah, the conscious parenting revolution and the work I've been doing for the last 20 years is to help parents to see their children's meltdowns as something about the child and not about reflecting the parents' abilities to be good parents. And that seems to be a really important fulcrum point because The behavioralist approach looks at children's behavior as being badly behaved or there's something about you're doing that's manipulative, disobedient, naughty. And it has, again, something to do with the vision of the parent being responsible for how the child behaves. And good parents have well-behaved children. And so a badly behaved child is a reflection of the parent's ability to parent as opposed to a reflection of the child's ability to cope with their emotions, disappointments, setbacks. And so this idea of separating and individuating and allowing children to be their own human being is really what the conscious parenting revolution is about, is just giving everybody the skills they need to manage and support the resiliency in their child and their own skill building 
and to look at the children as, gosh, you know, you're just, you're doing five perfectly. You're doing six perfectly. This is exactly what I would have expected from my five and six-year-old, rather than it's a punishable offense and that you need to go to your room and have a timeout and maybe have things that are pleasurable taken away from you, which to the child is like, gosh, I don't even know why you're doing this to me. I didn't do anything to hurt you, upset you, but the old model of parenting really is like that. Mm. That it's all about how your behavior makes me feel, what arises in me because of your meltdown in public. And the focus is on me getting you to stop making me feel that way as if that were even possible. But nevertheless, it is a mindset that it is possible and children shouldn't make me feel bad or embarrassed or upset or humiliated or all the rest of it. The whole thing is founded in just kind of taking the spell and the misconceptions and the lies out of our mindset that comes to raising children. Wow. That's, I mean, that's amazing. And it's, it's just so like refreshing to hear a new, a new point of view. I mean, I'm also uh spoiler alert, like heading on the parenting journey soon. So I'm just soaking wow. everything in. Um, Be in class. <laughs> I, may, I definitely <laughs> will. Um, how did you get into this? Work? Yeah, I was a commodities trader, you know, like you guys mentioned, and I did do that for decades, but I got into the work because I started having children. And, um, you know, my husband and I were living in Hong Kong and our little bundle of joy comes along and I'm a commodities trader. He's an architect. We've got our careers going. Everything's just fine. And, um, and then we find ourselves like a deer in headlights with behaviors that require something, some response. <laughs> we need to do some parenting work with our child. And we are at an absolute like, like standstill because what are we going to do? We can follow the model the one that's so popular, the behavioralist approach, which is pretty much pervasive. Have you noticed? Everybody yes. uses rewards and punishments. It's a thing. And, um, but it didn't feel right. And it just didn't seem to be the right response to make it about giving them some kind of quote unquote consequence, which is a euphemism. It's not really a consequence. It's a punishment for behavior I don't like or that I think is socially unacceptable. But nevertheless, some response is necessary. But what do I do if I don't do that? And I didn't wanna do that. I wanted to do something else. I had no clue what to do. So then I started taking my own parenting classes. I think everybody starts out with Gordon. And so I started out with Gordon, just like everybody else. And I became a card carrying, you know, Gordon parent. And then I became a trained Gordon trainer. And then I did that for years. And then I, I met Marshall Rosenberg, the founder of the Center for Nonviolent Communication and Restorative Justice. And that changed the model from Gordon and not radically. I mean, they're all singing from the same song sheet. Those who trained with Carl Rogers had a viewpoint. And so I kind of fell into the Rogerian a world of parenting because I took on everybody who trained with Carl Rogers, meaning Gordon, Rosenberg, Gendland, and I trained with all of them and kind of became certified in everybody's work and then recognized that each one in and of themselves alone was beautiful work, but together they were amazing. So I became the great synthesizer 
where I was able to kind of like integrate and change a little bit of Gordon and add some, you know, it's like I was making a recipe. And together we came up with the conscious parenting revolution and the guidance approach to parenting and gave it a name. And so I worked with an educational psychologist who had had a tremendous influence on me. And she had um, a really strong perspective around the unconscious bias against children that I thought nobody really actually talked about much. Gordon didn't Rosenberg generally, nobody did, but she did. And so I feel like that to me breaks through a lot of people in just beginning to go, oh, wow, I guess there is an unconscious bias against children. Children are a marginalized community. There is so much negativity. When you look at their behavior, you don't just think of it as somebody trying to meet their needs or struggling because they can't. You look at it as manipulative, out to get me, naughty, misbehaving. It's got that negative spin on it, which is not what you would necessarily think if your grandmother were struggling. You'd probably just instantly go to, oh my gosh, grandma, I'm so sorry. It looks like you're really struggling. But we don't have that same kind of empathic response because there's such a deeply embedded negative view of children. So yeah, I mean, it was transformational to kind of bring all the work together. It came with my own parenting journey. And then, you know, along the road, what you learn when you have children, do you guys have children? I know you're about to. No, no, yes. No, yeah. You'll figure this out is that it brings up everything that you haven't addressed. Like it is the greatest trigger known to man. If you want your teacher and you're looking for your spiritual teacher, have a child. And they show up and they teach you about your shadow and everything that's unaddressed. You get triggered left, right, and center every time they do what they quote unquote shouldn't do, or they break the rule book that you have within you that you don't even know you have within you that you grew up with. And there's all of us walk into the room, right? With this huge should list. And we have our upbringings that taught us what we should and shouldn't do. And we have instantly all these judgments that come up when somebody violates what they shouldn't be doing. Didn't they know? You don't even know. You only recognize it when you're triggered. And when you get triggered by one of the things that your kids are doing or their friends are doing or something that's happening, it's really an opportunity to go within and go, oh my gosh, wow. I got some unaddressed work here. I get Heather and I, I love that, that it's like talking about this implicit bias that we, we all have about groups that we are not a member of, that it's our responsibility to kind of like work through and like kind of unlearn. But this is like one of those last groups where we just, like we give each other permission to just continue to oppress and continue to feel that we are, (laughs) we are the better group literally because we've been around longer and because we've been exposed to more. It's. Absolutely. There is this, that's, that's it to a T. There's this idea that I got here first. Therefore, (laughs) somehow that gives me privilege to be able to do whatever I want to do to you. And, um, and I get to be righteous about it. Yeah, it's the same form of oppression that we have used for hundreds of years. I've been able to do this longer, you know, Joanna and I've talked about being grandfathered into things or Mm. being able to just gatekeep gatekeep privilege and it's 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 pretty wild that we don't even think about how we kind of put that on children who are literally defenseless (laughs) without our support exactly exactly so just that awareness and Mm -hmm. you know starting to i talk about the spells that we're under this is one of the big spells 
This is a spell that has been passed down generation after generation after generation, really from the beginning of time. And so this is such a deeply entrenched spell that we have to like literally recognize, wow, oh my God, I'm bringing all of this into, it's this huge filter that I'm looking through your behavior and I'm seeing it this way. I have a, I have a story when my kids and I would come back to the United States in the summer times on summer break and we would come and usually we'd spend a good portion of it with my family and my husband's family. And, and so my kids were growing up in a world where there were no quote unquote consequences other than the normal natural consequences. You know, if you jump on the bed, there's a chance you're going to fall off that, that, that could hurt. So there's a natural consequence, but they didn't know this consequence of you did something to piss me off. And therefore I'm going to make you pay for that. They didn't know that land that was new to them, but you know, obviously all around them, people lived on that planet where, you know, you do something to piss off an adult, they're going to make you pay for it as if you cause their feelings. That, that mystique of just what? So anyway, we're here in the States. We're at the house. My dad was in his eighties. My daughter was like five or six. And I said, you know, dad, I got to go out and get some things. Could you watch Pia? Sure, honey. I'm like, great. So that'll be really nice. You know, grandpa, you know, bonding time. And I go out, I run my errands, I come back and I'm walking to the house. There's dad, but no Pia. I said, dad, where's Pia? Oh, well, I sent her to her room. She's in a timeout. And I was like, oh my gosh, what happened? And he said, well, you know, honey, I told her it was time for lunch and she didn't come. And I told her again, and then she disrespected me again. So he has this word right now. He goes into the land of judgment and he's, He's feeling, he's feeling disrespected because she didn't respond like this. And so I told her, you're not going to disrespect your grandpa. Now you go downstairs to your room until you can, you know, come out and say, you're sorry. And I was like, oh my gosh, So I go downstairs and poor Pia, she's in the room and she's just crying her little heart out because she doesn't even know what she did wrong. And she says, choked between her tears, you know, mom, I was just finishing my drawing, <laughs> And then I was going to go and, and have my lunch with grandpa. Like it wasn't even about respect, disrespect, anything. It was about, he wanted right now. And she was not even aware of this land where you just drop everything and you run because of the patriarch. She didn't even know what that land looked like. So she just <laughs> finished her little drawing and then got in all this trouble and couldn't figure out what she'd done wrong. So I said, well, let's, let's go upstairs and have a talk with grandpa. Let, let's go have a talk with grandpa. So I went upstairs and I sat between my 80 something year old father and my six year old daughter. And I said, grandpa, you were, you were really upset. You felt like he had disrespected you. That's right. You don't disrespect your, your elders. And I was like, mm. I see that. I'm so sorry you felt that way. And then I turned to my daughter and I said, sweetie, you don't even know what this word means, do you? No, mom, I don't even know what it means. I was just finishing my drawing. And I said, yeah, you were just finishing your drawing. Wow. Okay. And you're just so upset because grandpa thought you were being mean. Yeah. I mean, it was so clear, like she didn't even understand. And I said, I'm so sorry the two of you had this breakdown. And I just got up and left. And about, I don't know, two or three hours later, my dad came to me, which was so beautiful. And he said to me, honey, it's a better way. 
Oh, that is, isn't that the response that we pray for in so we many situations? People yeah. just saying, you're, you've got me, you're right. It's because you were able way. to explain it and have your child there and have the evidence of her misunderstanding. Because even in that example, we, yeah. we, expect, we expect kids to be able to read our emotions, something that we can't even do as adults. We expect kids <laughs> to be able to predict what we want. And we expect kids to be able to communicate. Yeah, Which again, are skills that many adults don't have. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. Ooh, and there's this you. huge <laughs> distinction. And I talk about this in the training. There's a huge distinction between what we consider to be um, developmental with regard to academics. And okay. so if I can't, you know, if my child can't learn to read, I don't, it doesn't even occur to me to like put him in a timeout. What occurs to me is who's the best reading specialist in my area? Can I get them in? We just go straight to how can I help them? What can I do to get them the skills that they need? They're struggling. If it's behavior, it doesn't occur to us that they need support. We instantly go into the land of, I'm gonna figure out what the punishment is that's going to get you to start behaving. And we go into this spin, the behavioralist one that you were just talking about, where it's about what you do to someone that gets them to change their behavior as if the issue has to do with something other than a developmentally normal child who hasn't got a clue about what's going on inside of them, how not to merge with high emotion, how to handle these different dynamics that are just instantly triggering different emotional experiences. They have no clue what to do. And then we decide we're gonna send them to their room. Like that has the magic genie in it. that's gonna come out and support them through high emotion. It's seriously, when you break it down, it just makes you wonder like, like how did this become so popular? How did it become so popular? I love when you talked about, you know, Pavlov dog, and like this, this response, well, we know that there are certain responses that happen. If we have a shouting, violent family system, we do learn to read daddy's face. And the minute that start, that look happens, everybody already goes into panic, right? Mm -hmm. It really is an instantaneous response. So yeah, there's truth to it. You can control people through fear and violence. My question is, do you want to? Like, is that why you want them to change their behavior because they're terrified that you're going to lose your, your like all over them? Or do we want them changing their behavior because they've learned to be considerate of themselves and other people's needs? It, it definitely speaks to insecurities of so many adults that choose to have children or feel like they need to choose to have children. I, I'm, I'm really thinking about the line that I heard so much growing up, which was just because I said so. Yeah. And I'm realizing now that there was real because they didn't know. They didn't know why. When I would say why, they really didn't know. And the power like, everything. Yeah. Yeah. And how invalidating just like this cycle of behavior starts you out with invalidating, like you are upset. So you're being punished because of that. So saying like, That's you, right. should, you should, and like, I talked to so many people about removing the shoulds from their lives mm -hmm. because it's all we hear all the time. And that leads to like so much like, negative self-talk and anxiety and depression like it's 
it's this it's, terrible cycle. I believe it. I, I know that. And this is why I'm so passionate. I mean, I, I don't know if you grew up dysfunctional or functional families. I grew up with a dysfunctional one. And so, you know, most of us did and, mm-hmm. and we survived, um, you know, we come out the other end and we realize that all of that family system stuff is happening again, usually without any consciousness. It's a wash and repeat cycle. Mm-hmm. And those, you know, the players in the story have no idea that this is even abusive. They just think it's good parenting. That's mm-hmm. the irony is that there's a lot of self-righteousness that goes with this. So not only is it dysfunctional, not only is it harmful, it's coming from people who are self-righteous about how they're doing the right thing and that this is good parenting. It's this spare the rod and spoil the child world. I had somebody write that in a comment recently in one of my posts. Um, and I was like, wow, you know, we're probably not going to be friends mm-hmm. because I, I can't come from that place where I see that as healthy discipline. I will never see the spare the rod, spoil the child as healthy discipline. And whenever it's thrown in my face, I think I don't believe that that's what anyone ever meant. Discipline is required, which is, again, kind of back to the beginning of, yeah, you can't just be a passive parent who doesn't get involved who just allows any behavior to be considered okay when there's so many that are not okay. And we don't want our kids going out hitting other kids or hitting their siblings or hitting us. And yet it is evidence that they are out of control of their emotions. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do is support them to become regulated and to know how to do that on their own. And until they can, let's do it with them and we'll co-regulate until you can learn how to do it for yourself but let's just take the judgment out of it. Yep. That's in my own personal, in my own personal health, mental health journey, self-compassion has been just a a really big theme. And there's just so many areas that we practice judgment, even if, even because we're just trying to explain why maybe something is working when our bodies are telling us it's not. And this seems like a very, very excellent example of that. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it really is, Joanna, what you were just saying about that whole should list. And, you know, obviously all of us grow up with one, there's no way around it. And I'm sure my kids would say that I've created one for them too. So there's, you know, there's that whole world as well. Like God, you know, we're doing our best, all of us. Mm -hmm. I really believe that Um, even when it's appalling, you know, it's the highest vision usually that anyone has. And then it's just a matter of like, okay, is this the best? And, you know, the, the best line of approach, or can we improve it without there being shame about what I did do? I think that's another part of it is that, you know, oh, wow, you know, I, I just realized that actually there might be an even more effective approach to child rearing than the one that I had been using, but I don't need to go into some shame storm about what I used to use. Mm-hmm. It was maybe causing harm. I didn't even realize it caused harm but I didn't realize it at the time. So, you know, forgive them, Lord, they know not what they do. I mean, all of us are in that boat, but we, we, we grow up with such strong, we often grow up with such strong models of what's right and what's not right. That they leave such a deep impression on our mind that we have, again, you know, we have that tendency to just fall back on, Well, it was such a strong model, therefore it must be the best model, as opposed to it was my model for better or for worse. And 
And once we have these models, what I find is that our inner dialogues tend to follow whatever that outer dialogue was that we were raised in. And so then if someone else isn't telling us what we should or shouldn't do, there's this little voice inside that wants to come down hard on us. That is also being that disciplinarian that that outer disciplinarian was. And I think a lot of our inner dialogue work is managing to be with that part of us with empathy and concern and love, but not to think it's who we are and get lost into thinking that's my, that's the voice I follow and my behaviors flow from that voice. And even like inner dialogue, I mean, nobody ever spoke to me about inner dialogue work growing up. I don't know about you guys. There was no distinction between any of my inner sense of like, you know, what was. And we all know we've got these little inner critics inside and we've got these other parts that are protectors and defenders. And there's a whole bunch of stuff happening in our inner worlds. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever spoke to me about that. And I don't think most children grow up with a sense of, recognition that, yeah, there is something in you. And that's a part of what I do with my training is to help people recognize that, yeah, there's something in me that that's really critical. And, you know, I, I, I like to be with that part, that little part of me that is still struggling and to just be with it and accept it just the way it is rather than coming down hard on it and repeating the cycle, even within myself, let alone other people. Right. So there's this inner, uh, outer, inner, outer dance, which again, nobody talked to me about the dance. I didn't have anybody giving me a context for the dance. What about you guys? No, I, I think that if I would bring up some self, like if I would externalize some of these self critiquing yeah. Uh, <laughs> observations. I would, I would then be met with, well, why do you think like that? I never, t-, you know, I would be met with yeah. like more judgment of those thoughts. And then I'm like, right. I'm just, I'm done talking <laughs> to everybody. <laughs> I am just going to do as I'm told. Mm-hmm. I surrender. I surrender. 100%. You know, I talk about um, in one of my Ted talks, I talk about Alice Miller's work, the drama of the gifted child which is you know, such a seminal work, I think, in so many people's lives. When they stumble upon her, she articulated a voice that made sense of my world. And it took me a long time to find her. You know, It was actually um, not until my mother had passed and then I was able to actually take it in because I was so cathected and that's what she speaks to. When you've been cathected by the caregiver and They have not intentionally, again, it's all under the radar, it's subconscious, it's moving in that space, but they have through their own life never experienced because their parent wasn't capable of it. And of course, the one before that wasn't and the one before that wasn't the transgenerational trauma where that child grew up not being seen for what was going on within them, for how they were feeling, for what was their experience. It was all about, again, don't embarrass me. How dare you? And it was the caregiver's emotions that had to be mirrored back to them. You show me that you understand how I feel. You show me that you understand how you're making me feel. You show me, you show me. You show me. And as a result, the child, or at least I learned, you know, the only person that matters here is that mom feels good. So let's just bend our whatever's going on in here. Let's put that back on the back burner. And let's just be sure she's okay. <laughs> because if mom's not okay, 
wow, I'm not okay either. And so this is that idea that, you know, there isn't, it's not okay to have a self that's Mm -hmm. any different from the caregiver. This self has to mirror that self. And if we have to cut out parts of ourselves in order to be okay by that person's perspective, well, then we'll just put those way back here. You know, it's that whole codependency, a very strong codependent sort of theme of, you know, what was the name of that movie? I can't remember um, where they talk about, was it you who said this to me, Joanna? Somebody said it to me recently. <laughs> no, no. I where don't somebody know. was like um, in one of the movies, they said, uh, what's your favorite ice cream? And, and, and I think it was like Julia Roberts or something was like, well, what's your favorite? What do you like? And, and the, the most important poignant part of the entire movie was at the end of the movie, she actually figured out what her own favorite flavor was. Oh my God. <laughs> and was able to say, you know, my favorite is chocolate. And it took, I mean, it's it sorry, I mean, it, we laugh about it, but just even knowing what my own favorite flavor of ice cream is, because I'm not even allowed to know that much about myself, I just need to be sure you're happy with me. That's just like, wow, breaking that spell down giving yeah. people the privilege of knowing who they are. It's also, uh, yeah. it just makes me think of also how our institutions like keep this forward too. Like I, when I was in like fifth grade, I was in like the talented and gifted program, but the times took me out of art class and I really wanted to do art class. My parents heard that and they brought, they were like, Hey, can we move the time or can we change something? And it was like a big hullabaloo where the guy ended up being angry at my parents. And like, just cause I wanted to do art class. Cause I was like, what, like eight, <laughs> you know, like, Aww. isn't that yeah. amazing? Yeah. You know, we talk about giving people their voice, you know, that's one of the little drums that I beat. It's like, just so important to me, you know, that if I, you know, like touch somebody's life and they raise a child so that that child has a voice, you know, I feel like my job is done. Like, let your children have a voice. Teach them how to say no. Don't shame them for every no. Because, you know, so many people get offended by the no. Mm. They don't even want to hear what time would be more preferable for you. They don't even ask, wouldn't it have been considerate to have asked, you know, is this a good time for you? You know, or do you love art class? You know, would you rather it be during, you know, PE? Um, yes, you know, something like that. Yes, but that consideration of a child is, again, it's sort of like, well, children aren't people too. Why would we take their perspective into mm-hmm. consideration? And obedience and compliance is about, you know, getting you to do what I want you to do. Behavioralism is based on getting people to do what I want you to do. You know, father knows best, mother knows best. I'm the one who knows best. And it is, it really is teaching a child that their own sense of something isn't to be trusted. What you need to do is trust me. I'm the parent. I'm the adult. I'm the more educated. I'm the one who knows better than you do what's good for you. And this whole idea of not being really present to the fact that I and everybody on the planet are born with their own little sense of what's right for them and keeping them connected to that, I believe is our job, how to keep a child connected to their inner sense of rightness, Mm -hmm. to their inner no, and not for me to hear that no as having something to do with me. I say in my Mm -hmm. class, a no to me is a yes to something inside of themselves. So what? Are, just to get curious about it, like, what are you saying yes to? Okay, so it's a no to me, 
So like, what's going on? What, what are you saying yes to? What is it that's your real preference? What is it that you really want to do? Well, I don't want to go out. I want to stay home and I want to do my art or I want to stay home and I want to play, you know? Oh, I see. So it's really hard for you to come with me now and do what I want you to do. Yeah. Cause then I don't get to do what I want. Ah, all right. Well, let's talk about that. You know, and then you just, this is a, a different way of parenting. Then you're just all about interconnection, paying attention to both what I want and what they want, and then kind of working out, well, how can we both meet our needs? Like, how can you get your playtime in that you want? And how can we get my connecting time with you that I want? And can we figure this out? And when you start to approach children with this tenor, you know, generally they want to please you as well as please themselves. They, you know, it's not that we don't want to like please one another or that we don't want to like figure out what's going on for each other. Rosenberg used to talk about emotional liberation. And, you know, he broke this idea that, you know, it's not really that other people make you feel. So, you know, we all know, I think we all know that's true, but let's present somebody doesn't know that's true. Okay, well, mm-hmm. then there's what he called the land of slavery. If you live in the land of other people make you feel, then you, you want to enslave them so that they do what you want them to do so that you feel the way you do. In other words, don't trigger me, you know, and, and just do the things that I want you to do. So this is the land of emotional slavery. And a lot of people will play there for a really long time, like lifetimes. And they'll just like all believe this whole thing to be true until they won't. And then they graduate, he says, to emotional obnoxiousness, which is where people basically say, you know, screw you, I'm not responsible for your feelings and I'm not going to be made responsible much longer. So forget it, get over it. And he says that's so obnoxious, but it's naturally, you know, like the next step, you know, swinging from one to the, you know, far to the other. But then finally, he says, you know, really, we graduate to emotional liberation where it's true. I'm not responsible for your feelings, but I do care about you. And I'm able to have conversations from that place where it's like, yeah, you know, I can see you are upset and I care. I'm sorry you're upset. I wish that we could work through this. What's going on? And that's just such a genuine, authentic, honest place to come from. And if we can start with that to begin with, then our children aren't in, you know, Gordon talked about retaliation, rebellion, and resistance. And when you use power over someone to make them do something, even a child, you will activate the three R's. So when people come into my training programs, the first thing I smell out is, are the behaviors that you're here to tell me that are not working for you, are these by any chance retaliation, rebellion, and resistance that were activated when you used a power over approach on your child. Because if these are the three R's, we don't start by trying to manage these three. We go back further and we change your approach to conflict resolution so that you just stop activating them. They'll go away because you start using different skills to just deal with day-to-day conflict. But that does mean without using power over, you have to find some other way other than no ice cream, no TV, no friends, no play dates, no this, no that. I'm going to lock you in your room for the rest of your life. I mean, all of that kind of stuff as the motivator, the so-called motivator that's going to get someone to behave. It's just, it's just insanity. Do you guys feel it? Yes. Catherine, I'm having one of those rare situations in which I think a person exists just to tell me <laughs> things <laughs> that are okay. <laughs> I, I mean, so many things have like struck uh, that ice cream thing. I'm like still reeling from it a little bit, but for <laughs> instead of ice cream, for me, it was sports and religion. Uh, mm. I, 
But when you're talking about this uh, graduating from the emotional obnoxiousness to the emotional liberation, that's something I think that I'm kind of, you know, personally Somewhere. in that field. <laughs> and it's, and I'm, and I'm, I'm kind of touching my toe in the pool and it feels so nice. It feels like I'm being so mm. kind to myself and to those around me, mm. you know, the other people that are being hurt too. And like that yeah. relief is very welcoming, but it's also really freaking scary. Yeah. It's scary to give that up. And I love that there's so much attention being drawn in your work to how scary that is and how challenging that is, but also how drawing and healthy and important it can be, but also that it's your yeah. option, your option yeah. to choose. That's really, you great. know, Rosenberg would say about that stage where you're kind of stuck in obnoxious. The thing about obnoxious is that there's still guilt about having your own needs. And that's something from DBT, I believe, too, right? The list of absolute rights or something like that, Joanna. Oh, yeah, it's, I mean, like working with yeah. DBT is just like kind of undoing a lot of this stuff of like the shoulds and the invalidation and just mm -hmm. like, you know, your gut is right. Listen to yourself. Yeah. Right. But with with those rights and like what Catherine's talking about is that anxiety of uh, I don't know if I deserve this or if I need this mm -hmm. or who I'm going to step on while I search for that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, another distinction that I talk about in my trainings is really recognizing whether you have a child that is a people pleaser who wants to please you because a child that wants to please you is um, really, I mean, they're so easy to raise because they're already so attuned to other people's needs. Those are the kids that you actually need to give permission to being able to honor their own self because they'll dismiss themselves in service to the other over and over and over and over again. So they need to learn how it's okay to stand up for yourself. It's okay for you to have preferences. It's okay for you to speak about your feelings and needs. And it's all right. It's okay. Because they don't think it is. They're so concerned about the other that they actually don't know that it's okay for them to have their own feelings and needs. You need to coach that kid. And then on the other hand, we've got the autonomous child who's prepared to displease you regularly and to be in service to themselves and self-directed. And that's the child. I mean, usually those are the parents that I see the most because the parents of the children that are wanting to please you, they don't think there's a problem there. They don't recognize that there actually could become, there could be a very delayed resentment flow that comes later that there could be, whether they're in their late teens or early twenties, or even later in life, there, there will be a point where that person wakes up and says, you never let me honor myself. And the parent didn't even realize it, of course, because they were just doing their thing. But the child who's autonomous and so self-directed that they're happily able to say, no, no, no. And that's the one that most parents just go ballistic over because they can't get the child to behave. And no matter what reward or punishment they use, they can't bend that child's will. And so that's when all of a sudden they come into my land, which is where it's like, okay, great. These are kids that are actually impervious to your power. They'll say, fine, hit me, hit me harder. Great. Go ahead. Send me to my room. I love my room. No dessert. I didn't even like that stupid dessert. So no matter what you do to them, you can't manipulate them to do what you want them to do. And so these are the kids where it's like, okay, then what kind of discipline do I get to use with this child? Because this old thing over here that everybody else was using, it's not working. Indeed. Absolutely. Yeah. 
I think we're both just <laughs> yeah we're, we're both like <laughs> taking all this in uh-huh. with the work that you do what do you feel like is like the easiest thing or the thing you love the most and what is the hardest thing the easiest thing and the hardest thing um Yeah, I don't know if I can answer that very well. I'm just thinking I had a coaching call last night and what were the things that were coming up on the coaching call? And, you know, there's a distinction. I think maybe that's one of the hardest things for people to understand is because the goal of a behavioralist is obedience and compliance and power over is the modality that the distinction between that and when you need to use the protective use of force is a distinction that's hard, a little bit harder for people to understand because there's a reason why you would want to use the protective use of force. And it comes from a place within which is around caring for and protecting someone from harm rather than because I said so. However, on the outside, it's maybe a little bit hard to tell because they both appear to be someone using power Mm -hmm. So that's a very, that's a big one to, to work with. And I have some parents in my trainings who have kids that are older and are doing dangerous things and they want to step in to protect them. But because for the last, whatever, 15, 16 years, they've been using, they've been using controlling discipline to force compliance. It's very hard for the child to even feel that this is coming from a different place from the parent. So there's that, that, which I guess is probably the trickiest. Um, I think the easiest thing is that once parents begin to understand that behavior is a reflection of underlying unmet needs or behavior is a reflection of my needs being met. And they understand this needs-based paradigm that, you know, really human behavior is seeking to meet one or many of my needs at the same time whether it's the basic needs or needs for belonging, mattering, you know, the more emotionally based needs, that those reflections when needs are met are so easy to be around, you know, boop-de-boop-boop-de-boop, the well-behaved child, or the reflection of the unmet need, which is so hard to be around because it's kicking the dog, slamming the door, I hate you, mommy, I hate you, daddy, I hate everybody, blah, blah, blah. So those are harder to be around. And depersonalizing, You know, if you can just depersonalize and not listen to the words people say, Marshall said that all the time, never listen to the words people say, never listen to the words people say. And it's like, wow, that does help. (laughs) Absolutely. That really does help. If I just don't listen to those words, if I listen to the words and I focus on the words, man, that's going to take me down a rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. And if I just could learn not to listen to the words people say, then I can just see their behavior as the tragic expression of an unmet need. And if it's the tragic expression of an unmet need and I see them drowning, then I may be more inclined to just think, oh my God, get a lifeguard, you know, hop in the little boat, row out there, pull them into the boat, give them some life support, wrap a towel around them, give them a banana, give them some support, right? As opposed to the criticizing, the shaming, the punishing, because they didn't know how to drown politely. And I guess that spell of like, it's not really about learning how to drive, you know, but I think we all learned how to drown politely. Like that was the whole thing. Like mm-hmm. if you're drowning, just don't show it. If you're drowning, young lady, I don't want to hear about it. No, no way do I want to see it 
or have anybody in the neighborhood, what will the neighbors think if you don't learn how to drown politely? So it was all about what will the neighbors think? Don't rock the boat. Don't challenge me. I, I love that drowning politely. And I, I, Joanne and I have both worked in healthcare and we have also seen examples of healthcare professionals just also not wanting patients to drown loudly. And that kind of shame that's weaponized and used for people that are in really one of the scariest times of their lives, probably, and how, how unkind that is to do that to somebody. It really is. If we it can is. take our, you know, if we can just look at people and see the drowning behaviors as somebody who is suffering, then we just change everything. I mean, it's a trauma-informed perspective. It's just being able to see it that way, that, okay, this person is really struggling I wonder what I could do to support them to get through this rather than I don't want to have anything to do with them. I want to get away from them. I want to punish them. I want to, you know, do all that kind of stuff. And that's where, you know, people send their kids to like boot camp or military school, you know, break their, you know, break them. We'll get them to behave like they're some kind of out of control person when actually it's so, so contrary. This isn't about breaking someone. This is about wrapping them up in the blanket, putting your arm around them and saying, you know, is there anything I can do for you? Can I get you something? Do you need some water? You know, just like a compassionate perspective. Catherine, do, a, do, you, get, do you get negative feedback? I know you've gotten those comments of spare the rod, yeah, spoil the child, but do you, get, do you get backlash for your compassionate approach? Not, not from people in the training, not from people who okay. actually dive in, right? Oh, people sure. dive in and are actually there just to go, okay, this isn't working. I just need more skills. Help me out to find another framework. You know, those, those are parents who, you know, say it saves their relationships with their children. I have a guy who's been in my training who, who said, you know, after a few months, this is actually a course in kindness. This is seeing your children with kindness. And he said, and I feel like I'm, I'm finally the dad I want to be where my kid falling apart doesn't activate in me the need to get mad at them. Because if his child was acting out, it would make him mad. And if, for whatever reason, that was his framework. Like mm -hmm. kids that act out make me mad because I think it was about obedience and compliance and you know, not embarrassing and you know, that whole like script. So just changing that gave him freedom to just be with the child. And actually he just hugged her a lot. And then, you know, whatever her anger was usually turned into tears almost instantly, right? Whatever her thrashing about was, was really just somebody in pain. And he guess, I guess he learned how not to listen to the words people say from that point forward, he could just uh, be different. That's really nice. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Simple stuff. Not Absolutely. so simple to implement sometimes. Of course. And switching gears a little bit to focus on, on you, what are, what are some ways you take care of yourself? Mm. Yeah. You know, I mean, I have a meditation, breathing and meditation practice. And so I love to just do the breathing and meditation because that's such a immediate way to just calm my nervous system, become more centered in myself. Um, I love to sit outside. I love my yard. <laughs> nice. 
And um, I like to go out for lunch. Um, you know, we have things we do. My husband and I will get in the car and we'll go to lunch and then we'll drive around the town, you know, just fun things like that. Call a friend. Absolutely. That's great. And it sounds like it comes very naturally to, it sounds like, you know, you know what you like and you know what makes you feel yeah. good. And you and you know that for a lot of the people around you too. And that's, that's, that's a great outcome of all of this that you've, you've been able to just kind of not read people. That's not the point, but just to understand that everybody needs something different. Yeah. That's you know, I mean, I think that, you know, reading people, you know, a good codependent can read a room. Mm-hmm. Um, and know what everybody in the room is feeling. <laughs> they may not know their flavor of ice cream, but they'll know what yours is. Uh-huh. Ooh, yep. It's <laughs> <laughs> a quote of the day, definitely. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. All right, switching gears again, regarding your identity, you know, how has that helped or hindered the work that you've done regarding, you know, ethnicity, race, gender, sexual orientation, all of that? Yeah, you know, um, because I was in Asia for such a long time, a lot of the places where I would run my training in different, usually different international schools, I would be a guest speaker and be invited to run the training for their parent community. So a lot of those parents were Japanese, Chinese, Korean, European. They were not American. They were sometimes European, but everything under the sun. And sometimes it would be a thing of, well, this is just a North American or American or a Western approach. And I said, no, actually this isn't, this transcends, this transcends ethnicity and it transcends nationality. This is a way to think. And, and really, I think if you start to look at the patterns in the Far East, filial piety, deference to your elders, all of the things that are triggers in the Far East, they're not that different from the West. Mm-mm. And that, you know, that really kind of shocked the Far Easterners because they see themselves as having a type of deference to their elders that we don't have here in America. But actually we do. Mm-hmm. And I mean, so I would say there would, in answer to the question, it seemed as though, yes, there was something about being a blonde, Caucasian, North American woman that was not going to resonate with the Japanese, Korean, you know, Chinese clients because it was like, well, you are, you're, you're an American. And it was like, well, no, yes. And no, that this is, this is beyond all of that. And those people who would, you know, really embrace the training and the work would recognize that this is really a just about, actually, this is about becoming aware of one's own self and just recognizing that being aware of myself doesn't mean that I'm um, selfish, mm-hmm. which is the framework, I think, for Asia in particular. Even America, again, we're back to the American Asian, it's not that different, mm-hmm. that there's being aware of myself is not a threat to socially acceptable behavior. Being well-behaved doesn't have to come from a shame-based culture. Right. My desire to contribute is so deeply embedded that it is one of my primary needs to make a contribution. I will want to do that whether you guilt me into it or not. And if it's coming from within and is a pure response to just, you know, my soul's calling, 
it will come from a place that's so much more pure than a have to place. I'm glad you made that differentiation because I kind of chuckle when Western countries differentiate themselves from Eastern because they aren't shame-based, but it's just, it's just spoken differently. It is absolutely still shame-based. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the idea that, and this is one that I really love again, Alice Miller points out, you know, a healthy narcissism for a child to be seen as their, you know, having someone reflect back to them. You know, she said, if there had just been one person in the room, just one person in the room who would have acknowledged me and, and allowed me to know as a child, I wasn't crazy, that, that would have changed my life, would have changed her life. And so just everybody complicit in the lie, everyone is so complicit in this lie that children can embarrass their parents or make them feel a certain way. Everyone is complicit in the lie that if you don't come down hard on them, then you're being a um, permissive parent Mm -hmm. and you're creating quote unquote spoiled children, whatever that means. So, I mean, I struggle to understand any of these ways of seeing it. I'm just not in the boat anymore. So I look back and I think, well, a child isn't indulging their emotions if they're trying to find their voice in this situation. They're simply struggling to figure out how to be able to do that in a culture that doesn't allow them to have a voice. And any attempt for them to do so is seen as bad behavior and that they're stigmatized for wanting to have a voice. That is completely backwards. It's completely backwards. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're we're here nodding our heads like very. Uh, yeah, so just so everyone knows, we should put like a little we like, should put yes, like a little yes, shaky yes. noise every time we're both like yeah. yeah. I think it would be. I it. Honestly, I think it would be a little bit uh, <laughs> distracting if there was because we're always like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Therapist uh-huh. mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Catherine, do you have any questions for us? Well, you know, it sounds like there's a lot of what I'm talking about that you guys deeply resonate with. And so how does that show up in your lives, in your work? Yeah, definitely. I mean, at the risk of people around us hearing this and understanding and listening, (laughs) knowing who we're talking about, there's definitely, Catherine, when we talked on the phone initially, we talked about just that also like parenting the the inner child as well, how this would be beneficial for folks that have some of those unresolved codependencies and things like that. And I think that that's what's really, really yeah. hitting me because there's been a lot of growth. There's been a lot of change in the lives of me and, you know, those around me, but there's always room to heal more. And I think that that's something that should really be paid attention to. So mm-hmm. that's my answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, I said it before, it's just like, I am all about validation and trying to like also find that in my own life, the ways that I invalidate myself or invalidate my husband or invalidate my family. And also the ways that I am invalidated by them, you know, and mm-hmm. just trying to, you know, empower my clients to validate their emotions and feel like their thoughts and feelings matter. Uh, that's mm-hmm. my biggest, mm-hmm. biggest work that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. 
Mm, yeah, that's beautiful. It brings up for me the, you know, when I talked about sort of the Carl Rogers lineage that I came from, one of them is Gendlin's, Eugene Gendlin's work. And Eugene Gendlin's work is the inner dialogue work where you can turn towards your feeling and be with it and sense into how it would like you to be with it. And by turning toward it, you know, we create immediately an ability to disidentify. We know we're not it. It's there though. And we're, we're not pretending it isn't there. And we're also just being with it so we can be completely present to what is and accept it. Just have total and loving, compassionate acceptance of whatever is there is there for a reason. I don't, may not know or understand the reason, but this is something in me that needs me to be with it. And I'm just going to sense how it would like me to be with it. And, and as we begin to do that, you know, it's the world of the verbs and the adjectives and no nouns where it's constantly having the ability to transform. And Gendlin was so brilliant about what he called the felt sense and that there was the capacity to sense into, and you could even experience that it was related to how we held it in ourselves. Like, oh God, there's just this something it's like right here it's a knot in my throat or in the pit of my stomach or you know it's in the center of my chest and the ability to just put your hand there and doing that i mean you viscerally can experience that your body may have chills or there may be tears that come or there may be another type of release and that we have to go through these processes to release what is and as much as we may wish that there was none of that there, I don't know anybody who doesn't have to be with and to be present to their inner sense of something. Because even if it's something I cognitively can't remember, there is still an energy. There's an energy that is asking me to be present to it now because I can. And once upon a time, I wasn't able to. But now that I can be present and kind of grounded in a self of presence that's bigger than all of the stuff that's bugging me, then I'm actually able to be with it. And so getting bigger than what's bugging you is actually one of the core principles of the conscious parenting revolution is how do we have a sense of self that's larger than any part of us? I love that idea. And I love that that allowance for what you mentioned as like a little bit of healthy narcissism and the, the prioritization of yourself that then leads you to just being a better, whatever role you're in, especially yourself, because mm -hmm. you, you can then like secondary first gain is you are the best person you can be secondary gain is you show up and you be the better daughter, the better son, the better sister, better spouse. And it's, that's a that's a nice, that's a nice secondary gain. Yeah, you get to show up. Mm -hmm. because you actually know who you are. Mm -hmm. And that's the joy of actually empowering people to be seen is that they begin to get a sense of, oh, yeah, you know, I am loving, I am caring, um, I do matter. Um, and it's just, it's all of that stuff that we work with being able to reflect back to the child what's going on inside of them, not so much about what my experience of them is. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's a big shift. Yeah. All right, yeah. Catherine, are you? Do you know any resources that we you feel like all of us should know about? Just right off the top of your head. 
Well, I do love Alice Miller and I always talk about the okay. drama that gives a child. So it's, it's the one that meant so much to me. And so I always like to share that with everyone is that it may make you sense of a world that up until that moment in time didn't make sense. Yeah. All right. Beautiful. Great. All right. Shall we transition? We're going to transition into more of our sillier questions. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> first by asking you, what is your favorite breakfast? I have um, yogurt with blueberries. And I also have a little bowl of oatmeal with cinnamon every day. <laughs> that sounds very nice. What type of yogurt are we talking? Oh, it's so good. It's a Bavarian yogurt. Yeah, that I can only get now at the natural food store because even Whole Foods doesn't carry it. Mm, yeah, nice. it's very delicious. That is exclusive. Okay. <laughs> very exclusive. Look for it. It's a glass jar. It's got blue writing. It's a Bavarian Ooh. yogurt. It's phenomenal. Organic. Yummy. All right. Any guilty pleasures that you don't often talk about? That you don't even have to feel guilty about? You just yeah. don't broadcast? You know, my guiltiest pleasure is chocolate. I must admit. Oh, Fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. Like, yeah, that chocolate thing. Yeah, that's universal. I agree. It's Same. pretty universal. Yeah, <laughs> I know. All right. Nice. All right. Are we ready for our final question? This is a would you rather question. Oh, okay. Um, so would you rather you receive $1 million every time you post a selfie, every time you eat a meal? <laughs> so you have to post a selfie every time you eat a meal to receive a million dollars, or you can receive a million dollars if you never check social media again. Oh, definitely the latter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. But I am not that person. And it's just been so hard to adapt to the new world order here where, you know, everything is about social media. I'm trying, I'm trying, but yeah, no, I would much rather get paid not to. Oh my God. That would just be heaven. Would you get paid every time you post a picture, but you only you, get paid you once? Have to, no, you have to, every time you oh. post a selfie. Oh, I thought you were getting like $3 million a day. Yeah. I'd also choose never post on social media again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in a heartbeat, it in a seems, heartbeat, I wouldn't have to do advertising lot, yeah. for my business anymore. <laughs> I'd have I know. Oh my God. That just sounds like bliss uh, to me. It really I really does. I guess I, I would also choose the, the not checking social media again. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I like it. Yeah. I like it too. As long <laughs> as job. the like the um the <laughs> Ravelry, which is like the knitting and crocheting website, as long as that is not considered social media because it's like on the border, then mm -hmm. I'm okay. <laughs> if it is, then I'll go for the other one because I can't live without that website. Yeah, there's like our secondary <laughs> social media is like Reddit and things like that. And no, we don't have to okay. we don't have to worry All about right. those. All right, then you're safe. Yeah. Okay, thank yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> good. Oh my oh. goodness. Thank you so much, Catherine, for speaking with us today. It's been illuminating and refreshing. And I know I've got a lot of thinking to do. And um, yeah, thank you. Mm. This was so fun. Thank you guys so much. I love what you put together and that you've given me a place to share the Conscious Parenting Revolution. Uh, yeah, yeah, thank you for taking the time to yeah. come here and talk about it. It's been great for us and it'll be great for anybody that listens. And we are excited to spread the word. That is so great. Thank you. Love you guys. Absolutely. All right. Where are we? Da, 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 da.
All right. Thank you for listening to the show. Be sure to subscribe, rate, review us on Stitcher, Spotify, and now Apple Podcasts. Woo-hoo. You can check us out on Instagram at TNDPod or Twitter at TherapistNDPod, all one word, or visit our website at TNDPodcast.com. If you would like the ability to vote on what questions we ask our guests, bonus episodes, and so much more, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash TNDPodcast. And also, if you want to send us an email, you can send it to therapistsnextdoor at gmail.com. That's therapists, plural, at gmail.com. Until next time. We, we are, are your, your therapist, therapist next door. <laughs> <laughs> Lost you. Bye. Bye. <laughs>